0: Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. But they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 127 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 128th episode. I'm Laurent and Back with me this week
1: it is in Rainville.
0: Lovely to have you back. And uh, we are also have a very special guest. We've had a lot of very special guests recently, <laughs> uh, but this one is very special. Uh, so please welcome to the podcast, even though you're listening to this after it's been recorded, uh, Tyler Meredith, formerly of many places and, uh, a man who really in Ottawa needs no introduction, but who will nevertheless be now introducing himself.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to actually do this in person. Uh, I've been a long time listener of the podcast and you've definitely created an interesting niche, um, and just a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I uh, just recently, as of September, left the government of Canada after about seven or so years, uh, working in various roles in the prime minister's office in finance, uh, working on budgets, working on platforms. And before that, I was in the think tank world and management consulting.
0: Very good. So, Tyler, you've you've had a, as you mentioned, a, a very... Uh, storied career in the last uh, well during the life of this government, and uh, Etienne, you wanted to chat a bit about sort of a couple of key points about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, as as Laurent alluded to, uh, your name is not one that I think anyone in the GR world in the past eight years is unfamiliar with. Um, in part because of your centrality to platforms and budget, which are kind of like the the Super Bowl of the <laughs> lobbying world, if you will, from from my perspective. And so far as you know, when when the money is going out the door, a lot of people are trying to to knock on your door or get you to pick up the phone and get half an hour of your time. Um, but the budget process is much more than what you know external lobbyists try and do. There's the political side of it. There's what the departmental staff are saying our priorities as well as assessing external proposals i was hoping that would kind of be the focus of the conversation and then we can we can dig into the platform stuff in the the second half so i guess i would open with the question of like from your perspective how are budgets made how are the priorities set um how does it all come together
2: well you have to remember um and it's probably important to step back and, and start with um, what are the mandate letters of a government, right? Mm-hmm, sure. Because uh, especially now that they are transparent and we know what they are, they're posted yeah. online at pm.gc.ca. <laughs> uh, and good plug. Good yeah. Plug. And, uh, you know, so... Over the course of a government's mandate, however long that is, whether that's you know 18 months, 24 months, four years, um, your goal is to try to fulfill as many of those things as possible. And you don't necessarily um, start by saying, okay, so year one is going to be this, year two is going to be this, year three is going to be that. But the, the flow of work over the course of the government's time creates demands that as you go through each one of those years in government, um, you kind of... Thematically are addressing many of those things, and then of course, overlaid on that is events right because frankly yes uh, where you start is not always where you end up it never is and so the budget is an attempt as you 're kind of navigating through this um, especially in recent years as the budget has become kind of that singular focus of the policy agenda of a government uh, outside of speeches from the throne which You know, we don't do as much as we used to before. Um, Less less prorogation. Yeah, exactly. Um, Budgets, therefore, take on this role of being kind of the place where you you take stock of making sure you are running through over time the various things that you said you were going to do. And then at the same time, uh, trying to position those and the government in this changing, often very chaotic, increasingly, Uh, macroeconomic world Mm -hmm. and uh, address other things that come up, right? Like, you know, no one anticipated in 2015 uh, when Justin Trudeau was elected that we were going to have a U.S. president that that would fundamentally change uh, all of the things about how we conceived of trade policy, our relationship with the United States, industrial policy. And as you go along, budgets have to respond to those things, right? Uh, New ideas come up. Um, and new priorities come up, and the budget is the, is the attempt to try to, to reconcile all of those various accounts. But the one thing I will say, um, just as a long end to your, to your question, um, is that the, there is a budget, but it isn't in a way one budget. Um, there are actually multiple budgets in the course of a, of, a, of a year, and we don't talk about it that way, but it's actually true. Um, you have the budget, you have the fall economic statement, which is kind of like a mini budget, But then you also have all of the off-cycle spending, quote-unquote. That's a term um, some of your listeners may be familiar with that occurs in between the budget and the fall economic statement or between the fall economic statement and the budget. And the value of decisions that get made in between is actually sometimes just as much if not more than the value of the measures that you put into a budget so all that is to say um the the way in which stuff gets funded isn't the only way that you do policy but it's it's a big part of how you do policy in ottawa so let me pick
1: up on the the off cycle bit because i think People are going to be more familiar with the fall economic statement. Comes yeah. generally in the September to November window. You could say sometime. I even was part of one. It was in December. <laughs> I would say sometimes,
2: sometimes in December. That was
0: very recent, yeah. in fact.
2: Yeah, we um, got COVID because of it.
1: Oh, bummer. <laughs> <laughs> but is the mini budget, and so I think that's more straightforward. That it's kind of you know the, yeah. the six months apart. Um, but the off-cycle spending, what what crosses the threshold to become salient enough to warrant off-cycle spending instead of being held for either you know, document
2: one or document two? Well, so uh, it's a very good question. It somewhat comes down to how the public service decides that they want to ask for more cash, because that's really what you're doing, is you're sending a letter to the Minister of Finance and to the Prime Minister saying, can I please have more cash beyond what you've given me to do X or Y? Yeah. And oftentimes, departments can actually fund stuff internally. They don't have to ask for cash. Um, But there are reasons why they sometimes do, even if they have the ability to. Partly because they may not have the authorities to do something, so they need to get cover along with the cash in order to do something. It might also be that um, they don't have the flexibilities to move money from one program to another. And so they need, again, access to a decision that will let them go to Treasury Board or eventually to Parliament and... Uh, get an appropriation of funding. Um, and so the but but in many cases the the, the the demand, the demand side for that action is because there is an imperative, whether it is political or whether it's events driven, that needs you needs to get you to an announcement, right? And you can't make an announcement of cash unless you have a source of funds. and a source of funds requires a decision being made by the Prime Minister and the finance minister to say, we will at some point in time seek parliamentary approval for funding X or Y. And if you don't have that source of funds, then you can't make an announcement. So, so you know, you may have decided, someone may have decided, okay, well, t- you know, two weeks from now we need to uh, set an agreement with, this, with X province in order to be able to show the people of that province that we're making progress on something that's important to them. But we can't actually do that announcement unless we have the policy and the source of funds. And that's why you get often a, a large demand for activity outside of a outside of a budget season. So I think, like, to
1: make that tangible, the health spending recently yeah. announcement might have... I don't know if that's what you were alluding right. to, but that, no, that's, that's a very that's, good example that's of it right. in terms yeah. Yeah. of that's right. the Much last li- month.
0: Larger than, than the typical off-cycle announcement. <laughs> <laughs> to put it, to put it no, it's
2: true. It's true. I mean, and you, your off-cycle funding can be as small as you know a couple hundred thousand dollars, yes. to as large as a forty-eight billion-dollar change to the Canada Health Transfer. And Perhaps
0: a bit yeah. of an outlier, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but no, but it's true. Like that, that would have been an off-cycle funding decision um, that was made, and because certainly, if you go back and look at the fall economic statement, there's no source of funds that was set aside in the fall economic statement for. Um, the health cords, um, I mean, notionally people would have kind of factored that in as they anticipatory built, uh, budgeting yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes you do actually create notional set asides of envelopes of money that are not yet assigned to a particular policy, but for the most part, the reason that you would have a funding decision is because it 's driven by a particular policy outcome that you need to, uh, to articulate publicly. Yeah. So if I, can, if I can jump
0: on a sort of zooming out question a little bit is, is you know, you were, you were in, in many ways the, 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 the budget guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of like what your year looks like, so mm-hmm. the budget gets tabled and you know, anywhere from like February to April. And then let's say like D plus one, like, what are you up to? And then, how long are you think? How long until you are sort of thinking?
1: Do you want to touch on something first? Can I just yes, pull it back do. to? Let's let's start day of. Let's yeah. start budget yeah. day and then go forward. Like, what do you do on budget day? Well, you and make sure then. you wear a red tie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're a liberal staffer, you make sure you wear a red tie. Very um, good. Um, I remember actually on my on our first budget, one of my uh, colleagues uh, walked in without a red tie, and my uh, my boss at the time said, "Well, the the bay is that way. You, can go, get your, you can go get your red tie." No, um, no. Your, your, the budget day is. Um, I mean, because that, by that point in time, like you have spent an inordinate amount of effort, um, really focusing the mind on the message and the things that you really want to draw people's attention to. You've also spent a lot of time. In your mind, as a staffer, um, dissecting where the points of vulnerability are, and so you walk into that lockup, which usually begins on budget day, sometime around nine or ten, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's just like this this churn in your mind of anticipating all the questions that are about to get thrown at you by journalists, it, by okay. stakeholders. The media
0: lockup that you're going to, or well, there's various lockups, okay, right? So yeah. we
2: start in that that morning with the media lockup. Very so good. the media are invited to come in. Usually, so we around. never we
0: never were blessed with the presence of Tyler. <laughs> the NDP lockups. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would make rounds, but usually by that point in time in the day, because the the parliamentary lockups would start later in the day. Yes. Um, Um, you'd start with the media lockup. Uh, Those, they usually get uh, a bit of time with the documents and then there's an embargoed briefing that's done by officials. Mm -hmm. Um, And folks like myself would be on the sidelines available to answer questions, sometimes proactively going around and talking to journalists to point them in a direction of something that we would hope that they would cover. This is called spinning. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, uh, that is a term that's used. Uh, (laughs) um, And of course, it's all in background, right? And so you sometimes see subsequent Went to the budget reporting uh, in the news of, you know, a finance official said, mm-hmm. uh, unnamed, mm-hmm. it cannot be under the rules of embargo named, uh, you know, it, it would be, those would be very senior officials, usually um, the deputy minister, the ADM, or sometimes folks like myself, um, who'd be talking to journalists, um, uh, but all in background. And then, you know, throughout the day, you, you, you basically rinse and repeat that same process with caucus, with other parliamentarians, with members of cabinet, with uh, stakeholders, so that by four o'clock when the embargo is lifted and the Minister of Finance stands in the House of Commons, um, you know, you're you're basically now just watching all of those messages that you've been delivering to people for the last uh, eight or ten hours, now being transmitted in the form of a speech, and and then at five o'clock you start doing actual phone calls to people who couldn't be part of um, uh, the lockup, and it that process just continues, and then in the subsequent days, you know, you're doing a tour, um, you're taking that same. Exercise and repeating it in a physical tour that happens, uh, starting first with media and then events that the prime minister and the finance minister will do, and other cabinet ministers will do in different yeah. parts of the country. Are you
0: traveling along with that, or are you mostly like you know, sometimes you do? Support?
2: Sometimes you do. When I was in pmoa I did actually travel with the prime minister several times uh, over the course of several budgets as part of his tour, uh, and his tour usually lasts about one week um, through the through the budget. There will be echoes of themes and events mm-hmm. as that pop up, but you know. Usually by the, by, week, by the end of week one, the media interest in the budget has been exhausted. Sometimes that happens earlier, but, but the, the interest in, in the budget itself kind of the exhausts document itself. Per, per yeah, and, the document, and just like yeah. the implications, right? Sure. The story, the, yeah. the what does this mean for the government, uh, uh, what does it mean for the state of the fiscal health, all that kind of stuff. That, that exhausts itself within several days. But there are often there's often so much in a budget, right? That the that some of the very good nuggets, some some of the very interesting stories get lost, and you actually have to be very um, intentional, um, like weeks and months later, to try to drive media and stakeholder interest to realize, oh yeah, that thing on page two fifty, right, which actually matters to you. I need to remind you that it's there because yeah. you may have lost sight of it, right? Yes. Um, and there's a lot of events and efforts to try to do that over the course of the subsequent weeks after the budget. Um, but but what's interesting is, um, you know, in in the last number of years, um, as we've, especially through COVID, as there's been so much, you know, money that's been spent, obviously because of having to prop up the Canadian economy, it's not like that step Why, like that? That increase in spending has resulted in um, a substantial amount of extra attention to the budget or to the exercise of the budget. Right? It's like Mm it it doesn't matter, kind of how much you spend, whether it's a small amount or a big amount. There's just a certain amount of attention span that the media and stakeholders have for this kind of stuff, and it'll, you know, it'll run its course.
0: It's been observed to me that the 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 fact that the English words. Million, billion, and trillion are all basically sound the same. It's, like, not great for our understanding of arbitrarily large numbers um, as a society. Uh, so, But, yes, I, that's the point I've heard made before. So... Sort of how much time out uh, are you passing from this into, like, okay, what are we sort of looking at thematically for the next budget? And then how does that kind of come together in dialogue with other parts of government, with stakeholders, et cetera?
2: Well, I would say that—so if we're talking about the move from budget, like a budget in, let's say, 2022 to 2023 and Mm -hmm. from one year to another— you, you don't start to think about the next budget cycle until you've gone through the summer because, A, by the time you've launched the budget, the next thing after you've done your tour is you've actually got to get it passed in Parliament, right? And and that, from a from a political standpoint and, and just a staffing standpoint, consumes an inordinate amount of, of effort, especially now that we're in a minority Parliament, mm-hmm. um, of working through the committee structure, the... Uh, you know, discussions behind the scenes with the opposition about uh, how you're going to program debate and time allocation to the bill. And then actually like, can we get this thing passed by the end of June? Because oftentimes written into the budget law, the, the Budget Implementation Act, is a series of things that happen on specified dates. So yeah. if by July 1st, we don't have the budget bill passed, usually a whole bunch of tax measures kick in as of July 1st, right? And so if that doesn't happen, then, you know, the calendar gets gets resequenced. But, you know, it gets passed, parliament adjourns, we go off and have a nice summer, uh, we try to get some perspective, re-engage, caucus gets to re-engage with, with communities, we get to, you know, get a sense of how things have landed. And then by the time people start to come back for the fall... By, by around the end of August, that's when the planning process really starts in earnest again. A, because you can already start to see the, um, the horizon of a, of a fall economic statement start. Mm-hmm. But as you start that fall economic statement process, you're already thinking about what you want the next budget to be. Not that you know exactly what it's going to be, but you have a sense of what the work plan is going to entail. Because you're already starting to hear from different ministers about the things that they are interested in and the big things that are starting to move at the cabinet. And once that clarity of that kind of fall, winter cabinet agenda starts to really take shape, that's when you can begin to engage with your colleagues about um, what the kinds of things um, that are gonna be thrown at you uh, will be. Because if you think about a budget, a budget is, you know, we think of a budget as like one document, right? It's like sure. it's one big tome there with sometimes subsequent volumes, but it's 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 one document, right? But underlying that document is hundreds of decisions, right, that individually have to get made. And there's a whole process involved in terms of how you make those decisions that spans usually somewhere between four to six months, depending on, on uh, the context and the timelines. But like we're talking 300 decisions potentially. The majority of those decisions are often driven by things that departments themselves will propose. So that's why when I say, you know, you kind of need to see what's what is shaping up on the cabinet agenda um, in order to get a sense of how you're going to structure your budget, because that's the stuff that's going to get thrown at you. Right. Yeah. In a budget, you 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 have to a react to the stuff that is thrown at you. And ideally also put into the process things that you would like to, or, you know, you as as finance and PMO would like to see uh, be the the focus. But, you know, you are a a bit of a taker of what the rest of the system is trying to to do, because whether or not you want to do it, you have to at least go through the process of adjudicating whether it's worth doing, is it worth doing in the same way, should it be funded differently, um, and so on and so forth. And so... Um, you, you have to get a sense of what other people are going to ask for.
0: So that's that's a point I wanted to pick up on. So I'm glad this segues perfectly into what my next question is going to be, which is about sort of how does like sort of feedback from both, you know, like you get the ministerial sort of budget letters in, in November, mm-hmm. give or take. Uh, and I'm imagining that there's probably, you know, conversations preceding that around the cabinet mm-hmm. table and elsewhere. Uh, and also you're getting, for instance, the, you know, the finance submission, sorry, the submissions, for pre-budget yep. to the finance committee from a variety of stakeholders. Yep. You're getting the engagement process through the month of February, give or take, for the, the actual department. So how does that all kind of play into the decision-making? Because at the end of the day, PMO and finance are the ones making the, the calls, the decisions that you've you've discussed. So how do those factors sort of come together and how does that triage sort of happen?
2: So uh, go back to the beginning of, of your process there. So um, the first is we kick off the actual budget with a letter that goes from the finance minister to to her colleagues basically saying proposals are open for submission um, and you have until this date, but here's generally what I'd like to see and some early guidance about how to prepare those proposals. Mm-hmm. By that point in time, you don't know exactly what it is you want the budget to be, but you, you you know maybe have in your mind two or three strands of ideas that you'd like to focus on, be it economic growth, be it the environment, be it Indigenous reconciliation, whatever. Um, it'll depend from year to year. Um, those come in, and then once you've got that intake of hundreds of, of which are literally you know across thirty some departments, each of them may have ten things that they're asking for, which makes for three hundred yes. ideas. You have to first decide well, how many of these am I actually going to have time or interest in in reviewing? Um, you you have to be careful in chucking stuff at that stage because at the you know at the end of the day um you know you sometimes have to or you would want to go through the process of you know really analyzing and, and debating something before you realize that it's not worth doing but in some cases you may know okay this isn't ready right it they're, they're they haven't actually come to cabinet yet with their with their proposal they're just asking for funding before they've actually done the policy work so maybe we should let them do the policy work we'll have them come back or whatever you will eliminate some of the ideas, not all, like not, not a, a large amount, but you will eliminate some at that very early first gate. Then you have to, as you say, add other stuff into that, stuff that stakeholders are asking for that may be on point, stuff that caucus is interested in that may not be in those letters, stuff that you are interested in between yourselves and finance and PMO, Um, stuff that other departments are asking for that they may have forgotten about and just stuff that comes up because of events like for example you know we had an outbreak of hostilities in Ukraine um, last year during the budget process so um, you you have to manage those various different streams and um, by about the time of kind of Christmas um, you have a sense of notionally what you're going to start to look at and then Um, give some marching orders to officials to begin to develop um, some analytics on each one of those things because for every one of the budget proposals someone has to do the work right in terms of actually assessing is this thing worth doing and why and and if we should give money to it how much and what's the sequence and so forth and that quote-unquote two-pager I'm sure you've heard that term before it's never a (laughs) two-pager it's It's an aspirational aspirational two-pager Um, you know, those get written up by officials and, and you repeat that process hundreds of times over. And every single one of those two pagers has to be decided on by both the finance minister and the prime minister and their various teams and officials have to input into those things. And so it's a mammoth amount of work. Tyler, you are, you are like so perfectly
0: setting me up exactly where I want to go and I <laughs> tremendously appreciate None that. of this was planned. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask about kind of the relationship between where you sat in finance mm-hmm. compared to the department and then also with PMO and how you sort of triangulated uh, some of you know, the, the you know, different cultures, working styles, biases, yeah. et cetera, and sort of how that would work out in practice.
2: Yeah. So what was un- not entirely unique, but um, which I certainly had an interesting perch on was the fact that I had been on both sides of the table, right? So I had been the person in PMO who had helped um, support and guide the budget process, and then I was at finance and done the same job on the other side. So remember that the budget is has got two keys to the system, right? The mm-hmm. prime minister and the finance minister. Um, and so because of that, I, I by the time I went to finance, um, I a I I knew at the officials level all of those people had good, pretty good working relationships with them, um, even if you know I wasn't directly working in the same department as them day to day. And I knew also, you know how the how the, the two principles um, both in process but as people would you know be able to interact and at mm-hmm. the end of the day the key thing here is that it's about two principles it's two people and those people you know you can swap out different names but it really is a function of how do they like to make decisions how do they interact best in the process how do they work together you have to build processes that work for those, those two people. And it'll be very different from principle to principle, right? Like Stephen Harper, I'm sure would be very different than, than Justin Trudeau and so forth. And so you just, you have to build processes that your principles can work, work within. You sound like you want to say something.
1: Oh, I was going (laughs) to say, I I recently read, uh, Ed Reed double vision, Mm -hmm. uh, which a little bit of the history of the 94, 95 budgets. And in Mm -hmm. that he talks about how Kretzian's process with Paul Martin was to say like, I'll back you on everything. Like for him, it was very important that Paul have a complete run of show. Uh, I think that might have, may have tapered off in subsequent years, but at least initially he was like, I back on everything. That's how I view like the relationship of a finance minister to other ministers is that they should always have the backing of the PM. And so that I think was a fairly unique dynamic in, in terms of the the history of Canada, but that, that's ostensibly how it worked back then.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean i've read that book too and i don't know how accurate or not that portrayal is um you know i've i've heard different versions of that from people who've been around at the time but but look i mean regardless of who is there in the process for it to work well there has to be a healthy tension between both sides because they have different objectives that they're serving right they the, the prime minister is the head of the government, the head of the cabinet, um, the head of the party uh, has to think about uh, all the different um, dimensions around which the government is going to be assessed. The finance minister obviously has to think about those too, but, but first and foremost is going to be thinking about what is the overall fiscal track look like, right? Because yeah. that's what finance ministers are responsible for. Um, and so, you, you know, you put those two people into a process, regardless of who they are. They, there will be times at which they agree, there will be times at which they don't agree, but more, more or less, um, they are working together towards the same objective. And I think, you know, overall, certainly from my experience in government, I, I saw that work actually fairly well. Um, what I would say, though, to your question earlier about, like, so what's it like between the processes on the public service side and the political side... You know, the Department of Finance. There's some really, really good people who work in the Department of Finance. Um, they, Always a good profession. <laughs> no, they are. No, they, no, seriously. They some some of the best public servants that I know. Some of the uh, smartest public servants that I know work at the Department of Finance. Um, but their job is also to be their job primarily is to be a bit of a challenge function mm-hmm. as a central agency as in the way that all central agencies uh, are constructed. the 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 cha- the the more interesting dynamic though is when you have to step outside of that role and create new policy right from from scratch whether yeah. whether it's you know for, for whatever reason um, that that's being driven by but you have to create new, new say data. a global pandemic that, that could be one becomes the the obvious example <laughs> that, that, that could that could be one there can be there can be others um, the skills that you need to challenge policy and to critique it are very different than the skills you need to create new policy. Yes. Um, in fact, if you read um, her book, um, Hillary Clinton kind of talks a little bit about this in some places about how she found it very easy to be able to to react to ideas that were put in front of her, but very difficult sometimes to um, uh, to come up with just new thinking. And and again, the different, totally different yes. skill sets. And and I just I say that because. Um, you you know sometimes people are are I think sometimes overly critical about the Department of Finance on some things and I have at my in my own experience been critical, um, but it you know but they have a job uh, and their job for the most part is to be able to assess what's put in front of them by other departments right and so again if you think about what that process of the budget mm-hmm. is where most of it is driven by people who people outside of your department who are asking you for money to do something you're going to get very good at, at assessing whether or not that person on the other side is has got what it takes to do what they say they want to do. But when you are put on the spot to actually come up with new stuff, totally different context. So it's a,
0: I, I apologize, you can get the next one. Um, the This is a really interesting point because when Etienne and I were attending Carlton's excellent Master of Political Management program, um, one thing we were kind of taught was that <laughs> Usually public, like, political staff are not in a position to out public service to public service when it comes to idea generation. And it sounds like finance is perhaps in a bit of an odd perch there, where there is actually a niche for Uh, political staff to come up with new ideas in ways that the public service is ill-equipped to do is is that about accurate or do you think that that's a generalized phenomenon yeah i
2: i think it's true i i think it's not just true of finance though in the sense that like i think if you were to look at the privy council office Mm -hmm. um you know the the privy council office operates largely as a secretariat for coordinating the functions of cabinet it isn't it isn't Designed to be a place of new policy insight or development, um, that's it. May people may have had constructs of PCO at one time in the past, where that was true, but that is not um, what the history of PMO in the last or PCO, excuse me, in the last number of decades has been. Um, and it's true of other central agencies. Like, If you're a central agency, your job is kind of often not to create policy. It's, it's to coordinate, it's to deliver, it's to be, over, to be an oversight function, but it's not to create. And, but, but to your point, central agencies or the, the political staff that's, that sit on the other side of central agencies are often the ones that have carriage over a government's agenda, right? Mm -hmm. Or have to kind of help steer a government's agenda in a certain direction. And that's where policy, you know, policy making and policy creativity is important. So what I was, what I found was very important to my job when I was there as a staffer was actually the skill sets that I had developed before I was in politics when I was working in the think tank world. A lot of what made me very good at my job and a lot of what what i was put in situations to do was to kind of replicate in the political system what i had done in the think tank world which was go out talk to really smart people on the outside uh, connect with the best experts identify where ideas were lying outside of government that kind of aligned with problems that we were dealing with internally and then connect those problems to those people and take the ideas that they have and try to bring them into the public service Mm -hmm. um the best policy making that i ever did was when i just took ideas that were kind of 80 percent there maybe needed a bit of a of a tweak or some adjustment to fit the political context or the policy context but that we could take what had already someone had already worked on outside and throw it into the public service and see what, what would come out of it.
1: So, I think I'd be remiss if the, the the conversation around idea generation, we didn't tie it directly to your work on platforms. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, you know, notionally, platforms serve as the document where... Are,
0: are we good on budget? Well, no, I think we'll come okay. back to very budget. Good. I
1: think this is a, a brief segue in, <laughs> okay. in, in, into platform. Well, uh, very much very, so. very much in the spirit of me and a chance skiing today, we're carving. We're coming <laughs> in and out. We're just going back <laughs> and forth. Where, like, to what it, I guess... To what extent does much – does the platform-making process inject, you know, a suite of new ideas into the eventual policy process of the government? Yes. Um, And to what extent is the platform process significantly different than kind of the iterative policy process that's going on kind of day-to-day in the government
2: already? So – I will answer this from the perspective of someone who was writing two platforms for an incumbent government trying to get reelected, as opposed to an opposition party, a, a
1: third party, yeah. writing a platform yeah. D- with like, no let's, department let's, and yeah. one staff. Happy to talk to folks about that sometime. Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 like, let's just let's table stakes, like, because I think that's important context, yeah. right? And the reason that that's important context, at least from my perspective, is that um, remember what political campaigns are all about. When a political campaign starts, it is jump ball, right? Mm-hmm. And parties can be heading the polls, going into a campaign. But the moment that the campaign starts, every party of the major parties, at least, is given equal treatment by the media. And everyone has equal opportunity to, in the idea space to define what that election is. That's campaign. very generous, Tyler. But, but it's true. No, but, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I yeah. think it's true.
0: I think, I mean, I. you get... I think it's true. From my third party perspective, it's better during yeah. campaigns. It is not... Okay, fair. it but may not be equal, but, but yeah.
2: you're on a more. Let's say it's a more equal. I would agree with that. Right? Yes. Um, because there's a there's a there's a fairness bias that yes. that kicks in in terms of how we have to cover yes. campaigns,
0: and there's also sort of like chin stroking. Well, how will you pay for that bias yes. that comes in as the first question <laughs> that is as as the mark of seriousness of anything. Anyway. Right, right. And I'll and, talk about that some other. Yeah, time. <laughs> but
2: but the reason I say that is because if you're an incumbent government, it means that all of what you were talking about. Every in every day up to the day that the writ was dropped doesn't matter once mm-hmm. the writ was dropped. A because you can't access any of those resources, but B because like you're you're asking again for people to trust you yes. and the and, gestalt of what you're doing is completely different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you actually have to, if you do the process well, you have to separate yourself from government. That's why um, at least in the 2019 case, um, like I was actually kind of like sent off from my. From my exercise to go uh, when I was in PMO to actually go and just have the freedom of time to go and talk to they people. Put you in a dark room. <laughs> well, to think, to think, but 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 most importantly, to go out and talk to people, right? And and so at least the process that I've done um, in multiple times is um, you go out and you you just you. You identify, uh, let's say 100 smart people. It'll be more than that, but let's start with 100 of the smartest people um, across a whole variety of issues that cover the waterfront of all the things that a campaign needs to talk, uh, talk about. And you just, you go and you do a bunch of interviews. And you talk about what's what do they think the burning issues are? Are there ideas that respond to those burning issues? Um, as you're going through that interview process, you go and look at uh, you know polling that uh, that your party is often doing to try to see where the mood of the country is, and you try to fit those ideas that you're seeing on the outside, uh, be they in the academic world, be they stakeholders or or wherever, to try to fit those two things together, and then you take the kind of inspiration of direction that you may be getting from those various conversations and you start to just write and you write out a lot of different just draft ideas and you put all of that on a table people start to look at it and say what do they like what are they interested in what is that how does that fit together as a kind of a campaign that you'd like to run and you, you rinse and repeat. You, you go back, you refine, you do more work on, you talk to more experts, you cost, you talk to your caucus, you talk to your party, you talk to your cabinet colleagues. Um, and uh, you try to define where there are new ideas that will respond to where you think the mood of the country is going to be at the day in which they have to make that, that vote.
1: So, just to summarize, the distinction between what you're doing in that process and what you're doing when you're in finance kind of day-to-day is really about having the time to unplug from everything (laughs) going on at any moment and really the dedicated resources to be able to...
2: Yeah, you need to disconnect from thinking like a government. You need to think like an opposition party, right? um, um, look look at the problems. Right? Yeah, you got to yeah. look at the same problem, but yeah. but like, so here's what here's what I'm gonna say. If a party wound up in an election and just proposed an election, the things and ideas that they're talking about in government, often with you know themselves, but also with public servants, and then just put that out publicly, I think you'd get a far less enthusiastic <laughs> response to those ideas than. If you, then if a political party actually went out and crafted those ideas, um, having not had the the barnacles of having had to think a certain way or lead yeah. your mind to a certain set of options because of the, the the way in which you are conditioned to think when you're People
0: involved. talk a lot about ballot questions and I think those are always like pertinent things to ask. And like, you know, I've been on the, the opposition side thinking about like, okay, but what's the, how does this relate to a ballot question on this? But I think what you're, you're sort of getting at is that underneath that kind of like campaign mindset of like, how are we getting people to the ballot question we want them to be asking, is there is an underlying what kind of society do we want question yeah. that people are asking themselves at perhaps even at a subconscious level, but that you need to show some aspiration in a platform, even if you are in government. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. That's, exa- that's exactly right. You've said it better than I did, um, which is you get the amazing opportunity in a platform process to take out a whiteboard and to say how could we improve canada what could we do to make this country that we love better What is that ambitious big project that excites people that we think is the right time for now to do? Which, if we get the privilege of being in government, we can do. That's an amazing experience, right? To just even think about those ideas, about if you were given the opportunity to be in government, what you'd like to do. That's an amazing experience. And you know what? If you actually write it down, and you get people to vote for you. You get to do those things, right? And that's the thing sometimes that that I think we don't appreciate enough of, but even the, sometimes the public service doesn't appreciate enough of, right? Which is, it's not these, these grubby political people coming in with ideas that, you know, oh my God, why are we having to do these things? It's because people voted for them, right? It's because it's citizens listened to... Now, campaigns are about many things, not often always about all the, all the things that are in the platform, but more or less we as voters we weigh these things and we make decisions and when we put our trust in people they have the they have the the uh, the right to to go and govern on the platform in which they they were elected and um you know the uh, it is because of those the way in which parties write things down and the way in which they've conceived of an idea that that's often what becomes a policy right it's like the reason that um, Minister Lemeny just recently introduced uh, a bill to create a, um, a, criminal, uh, a criminal case review commission is because it was in the 2019 platform of the Liberal Party of Canada, because we had a couple of stakeholders come to us, the Innocence Project, and say that this was an important thing to avoid miscarriages of justice. And we thought about it and said, yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. So let me ask you about the,
1: the opposite example, which are the ideas that end up in platform that you realize perhaps we're ilking maybe there's none there's none in your (laughs) no no i've been thinking about getting into camping you have any (laughs) but
0: like we're actually just talking about this (laughs) today ironically we're all needs money for camping um
1: got a wedding to plan, Tyler. come on but yeah there's there's examples of this where you know stakeholders look uh with you know, dripping jowls at certain pieces that are announced in platform. Yep. And they say, and I, I've been that stakeholder yep. saying, okay, uh, next budget, let's let's push them hard and let's get our $200 million out of the government for the thing yep. that they promised. And it doesn't come up that year. And, say, okay, next year is the year. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, on year three, you start to get the sense that uh, that thing in platform is never yep. going to come.
2: And you kind of wonder what happened to it. So not everything that that is in a platform gets done but most and many things that are in a platform gets done. So getting into a platform is th- usually about 3 times out of 4 or 4 times out of 5 depending on on the party there's there's some empirical evidence to this I'm not pulling these numbers out of out of my um, I'm under my hat, um, but um, <laughs> these are um, the deliverology numbers. Yeah. sure. <laughs> well, the, there's also empirical literature to that. Um, but yes, you can go online and and, and follow the trackers, at various different action, ex- you know, exercises to follow them. But more or less, I think it was archived by the government of Canada. Four, after four out, out of five, four out of five things in a platform tend to be done either directly or indirectly in mm-hmm. the way that they were they were proposed. But there are some things that don't, and those things can be dropped for reasons of circumstances changing, right? A, a, you know, when the focus of the government, because of the election of Donald Trump, occurred, it, it, it changes changes your priorities, right? It changes just the focus of of everyone in government on different things, not because sometimes they're bad ideas, but just the the timing changes, the circumstances change. But there are some things where you learn more about something once you are in government, when the mm-hmm. public service says, congratulations on being elected, now here's a bunch of reasons why you shouldn't do what you were just elected to do. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, and, and and your your job is sometimes to push back or to challenge those those biases against doing them, but sometimes it's also to listen, right? To listen to why there may be a, a span of information that you didn't have access to, um, as to why it would be better to either do something differently or to not do something at all, um, and the, the job of good political staff as much as the job of, of good cabinet ministers is to have the judgment to know when to to say yes we're going to take that advice and drop this thing and I can legitimately sell to people that you know it'd be better to being better informed on something to do something differently. Sometimes you can actually make that a virtue. Um, Or alternatively to turn around and to say, no, you know, we got elected on a very clear mandate. People are expecting us to do something and we have to be judged on our ability to implement on what we said. And Mm -hmm. deciding between those two things is incredibly important in how um, you execute your your role uh, in government.
0: Is, is that where you want it to go on, on budget, or you, do, could we pivot full-time to platform? Okay. I mean, it's a long diversion, <laughs> but we can, we, can keep, we can keep platform going. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I i will let you lead on that if you want to, if you've if
1: you got a pertinent question to, to jump on. So mine would be, how do you, I, I, you... You elaborated a little bit on it, but... So you were the primary pen i I don't is that a fair characterization one of the primary pens on on both 2019
2: 2021 but but to be fair i mean there are a team of people that input on these things but i was the lead kind of person coordinating and, and organizing that work
1: so my question is how how you connect to the political side like i know the relationship between a minister's office staff and the minister. That's mm-hmm. I, it's something I think we've covered. I, I hope, fingers amply crossed, we, we've covered amply on this show. <laughs> um, but sometime after you were appointed to that role, I mean, at least publicly, mm-hmm. um, depending on which election we're talking about, there are political budget co-chairs that are named. Um, Goodale, for instance, and... Mona Fortier. Fortier. How do they tie into the process and in, and into the work that you're so, doing. So they, they obviously yeah. are not put in the dark room with the no, no. Well, the telephone yeah. and the sensory deprivation. The the time to call. <laughs> like they they still have significant portfolios and jobs and yeah. they're doing a number of other things at any given time. So how does that process, how do the political so, actors tie into it?
2: So so in twenty nineteen and similarly in twenty twenty one all the the people were Different. Um so in twenty nineteen we had um Ralph Goodell um and Mona and then twenty twenty one we had Mona and Terry um um do good. Do good thank you. Sorry, I was a number of different oh, Terry. So that was that is fair. Number of different terry I'm actually um, shocked that Tan pulled that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 so the, the reason I mention that is because in both cases, you had a cabinet minister and then a non-cabinet minister. Yeah, in, who's very in deliberate cards. choice, I imagine. Exactly. So one, so one of whom, uh, because they're in cabinet, they're, they will have you know a busier schedule, but they also are a little bit of a link into the, the conversations going on with cabinet m- members. And then the other is someone who has a bit more time, who can also be a bit more of an engaged face with stakeholders. Um and all of the various demands of which there will be many stakeholders, both internal to the party as well as external to the, the broader stakeholder community here in Ottawa. And uh, uh, you know, your your job as a staffer in that process um, is to basically support them. Um, you're the kind of secretariat that also supports them. Sure. Um They they get to they get, they get the task of sharing in the work of going out and talking to all of these people. Um, Uh, And giving you direction on how you write something and what it is that you're looking kind of what's the objective that you're looking to write stuff to and, um, you know, in my case, I would have weekly meetings with them uh, to kind of talk through different thematic issues as we were working through things. Um, and they would give me guidance on what um, we were looking to achieve and then I would come back to them with product show them and we would talk about it and then eventually as you know as we're ready at different points in time we take that up and show the leader of the party um, and get the leaders feedback and um, go on and 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 uh, continue to kind of iterate on the objectives that the leader uh, has and how they've reacted to the kind of buffet of things that you put in front of them but it, but it was interesting because um, you, you use the word budget um, and my point is only that in that case it, well in both cases it they're not there just for the how do you allocate the dollars exercise of a platform but also just the whole thing just the construction of what are the what are the chapters that we want to have what are the ideas within that that we want to emphasize um, And ideally you know in a platform, A good platform has kind of four components to it. It has um, things that speak to the party so that may represent things that the party has passed as resolutions before that members are really interested in. You know, cannabis, for example, legalization in 2015 happened in part because the prime minister uh, leader at the time committed to it. But but he committed to it in part because the young liberals had actually made it a big thing Mm -hmm. and had passed it as a resolution. Um, and so, you know, you've got to have a, a a component of your platform needs to speak to those things that the party membership is super interested in. Similarly, the caucus um, and the caucus. And I, I really emphasize this because when you're a government, you have cabinet ministers, but cabinet ministers actually aren't cabinet ministers in a campaign. They're candidates,
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: And caucus members are candidates. And so your unelected candidates and your elected candidates and your cabinet ministers all have to be kind of involved in an, in a way, um, recognizing that a cabinet minister has the same weight in the process as a candidate does um, because they're not a cabinet minister when you come to an election. So another component of the platform has to speak to things that they are interested in. The third component is kind of that stakeholder expert community, the validators who, um, some of whom have really good ideas that you want to steal from, but also others that when the document comes out, you want them to say good things about it. And so ideally you have a few things that reflect what they're interested in. And then the fourth component is the leader and just what are the things that the leader, the values, the ideas, the leader really wants to put their stamp on at that point in time. And the reason I say that it's those four things is because, it's, you actually have to strike a fine balance across them. If you have a platform that is a little too weighted in the direction of just doing what stakeholders want or and not sufficiently representative of your party's interests or your leader's interests, the thing won't sell, right? In, yeah. in, a, in a campaign, it will not have the presence of... Of being able to be pushed and that momentum of being pushed through the political machine of a campaign. Equally, if it's only your leader's ideas and they are disconnected from the party, and the membership, and and the outside world, um, it may not go as well, right? Um, and so you have to. You have, there's a fine balance there of how you keep those various things in equilibrium, in order to uh, actually have you know, announcements over the course of sometimes a 30 or 40 day campaign that are going to tell the story you want to ultimately tell. So let me let me zoom out and ask the meta question,
1: which is, we've had this... That's co- <laughs> exactly <laughs> where I was going. Yeah. It's <laughs> okay, go having this conversation. <laughs> the, the kind of modern discourse on platforms is like, they're the gold standard that a citizen should read in order to create an informed opinion. Um, and often people are, you know, challenged. That's the benchmark. Like, it's like, oh, well, have you read The Platform? Exactly. Well, <laughs> b- before you voted, did you read The Platform? Oh, I read The Platform. And, like, the history of platforms has kind of ebbed and flowed. <clears throat> More ebbed and flowed in some cases. Um, and they're not, you know, this defa- this de facto document that a lot of people presume mm-hmm. them to be. That, like, every political party since the beginning of time has always produced a platform and all informed mm-hmm. citizens has read The Platform. So I guess the question is, do you see them staying in their current form and do you place the kind of value on reading the platform as as someone who's authored platforms as, you know, the value in terms of understanding the principles and the values of a, a given political party that. This is in fact the gold standard, or and that there are better ways to appraise if, who who you should vote
0: for. If I can interject, the uh, yeah, and to sort of put the other side on this, like if you were sort of looking at a continuum of like I'm going to read the read mm-hmm. the notes mm-hmm. and see what's mm-hmm. what's up versus like mm-hmm. I'm going to vote based on the vibe yeah. of, of the yeah. leader yeah. and the per, the people around him as to like who do I trust yeah. to sort of do this versus other people. So those are the kind of goals so, that we'll put forward. look and
2: and we've actually seen a version of these different case studies play out in the course of the last several campaigns because you know we had um, uh, Patrick Brown put out a super detailed platform which was you know as you know Doug Ford came with something that was much more high level shall we say Thinner. Um, you, you said that I <laughs> A diet um, platform <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, we've seen the NDP now twice do, um, kind of like vision documents followed that have been pre-released then followed later by costing tables that kind of are supposed to respond to the vision document. Um, (laughs) or supposed to, well, no, I mean, I give them credit, like, but and then, and then you have like the more traditional platform that's like, I will do X, and here's how I've costed X and Y, and then it's a summation of all of the X and Ys that you have in your, in your document. I don't think there's one right model. Um, and I think we can certainly look across the political outcomes and say, voters don't sit there and wait for the gold standard of a platform in order to elect the party that's done the best work. But, but... I do think that the credibility of writing a good document that can be defended well in answering the who, what, where, when, and why of what you would do in government, it it at least, it doesn't win you elections, but it gets you to a starting place that buys you a lot of credibility in how you're covered, um, and also in your ability to kind of say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Now, in some cases, you don't need that to get elected and we've seen examples of why you don't need that to get elected, but it, it, it helps right like and, and I certainly as a platform writer took a lot of solace in the fact that when through the process of costing in particular of the last two campaigns, you know, the Liberal Party of Canada got the best uh, got the best score according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy. In both campaigns. Um, and that was something that we aimed for in both campaigns at the beginning to, to make sure that we would produce a document that could stand up and delivered. And and that was what we wanted to achieve because it was part of our credo of, of how and how the leader wanted to run that campaign. That that's, doesn't mean that that is what you have to do or that what parties should do.
0: I think uh, on the point of, of kind of... Um... Um. Oh shoot! I've I've lost my thread. attend do you want to jump into something before we uh, get too far afield? I,
1: I was I was just thinking about Kevin Page and and, <laughs> and the role he he's done there. Oh, I, I remember it now. Oh, okay. go ahead. Woo! Okay.
0: So, 2015, I think, is a really good example of what mm-hmm. you said about like platforms don't necessarily win you elections, but they certainly can lose you in elections. Yes. And uh, this is kind of just an illustrative if highlight more than anything, but uh, I. You know, worked as a volunteer. I had no formal connection to the party at that point. I hadn't moved all the way up uh, on the, uh, the NDP campaign uh, mm-hmm. in my, my writing at that point, which was in Saskatoon, a uh, lovely city. Uh, but I remember just, like, thinking about, boy, like, I don't know how this is going to work with these no deficits, mm-hmm. uh, no significant tax increases, but all these big new programs. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to pass a bit of a nod test with the mm-hmm. voter of, like, does this kind of make yes. facial sense? Yes. Um, before people are kind of willing to put their trust in you. Um, and certainly, I think the liberal platform that year, when they were very frank about just like, yeah, we're going to run some deficits. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people more concerned about deficits than me have certainly raised a lot of squeals about that over the years. Uh, but yes, mm-hmm. like that, I think, was a really good example to me as a as a young, politically involved person that like, you, you don't necessarily have to have the best one, but it... it, it it's not ideal when you have the worst one. And I'll apologize for Hugo there, who has uh, jumped in. Uh, but yes, <laughs> carry on, please. <laughs> no, it's true. It, it's true.
2: Um, and I think to be to be even a little... To take, to take that example that you described a step further, I, I do think that there is, and maybe validates your point about not being entirely on an even playing field for everybody in a campaign. I, I, I think the expectations are different from yeah. where you s- sit on the political spectrum, right? Like I think... They, I think, those on the right start with a natural kind of um, credibility, whether it is justified or not, yeah. on the economy. Indeed, yes, um, that the that progressive parties have to kind of it's a higher bar that they have to meet. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, but yeah, it, it, like. It's true. If you don't execute the if you don't execute the design and delivery of your platform well, it can create dynamics in a campaign that your opponents can take advantage of. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so. We knew in 2021. There's just it was obvious um, for all of the great coverage that Aaron O'Toole was getting on the day that he launched his platform, which is, a, by the way, was a really well done, detailed platform. Front of the show. Um, <laughs> hey Aaron, <laughs> hope you're doing well. <laughs> um, and 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 the people who wrote that, like Dan Meter, who wrote that, you know, did a really good job. Um, uh, I, you know, obviously I disagree with elements that are in that platform, but from from a platform quality perspective, it was very well done. But because he didn't have their costing done and out the same day as when they launched their platform, it created a, um, an opening or a distance between those two events that as they started to say things, and to a certain extent, potentially over-promise on what something would, would be um, without knowing exactly where they were gonna get the funding to do that, um, it meant that when the costing came along, and we saw for example that they were going to pay for a bunch of things by ending all of the childcare investments and they weren't you know when they said that they were going to put healthcare back to a 6% escalator it wasn't going to deliver the billions of dollars that people thought that it would deliver it allows you in an, at the opening of the campaign to say, you see everything he just said, you can't believe, right? And if you lose the argument on one or two of those signature things, it throws open the entire credibility of what you're trying to prosecute in a campaign. So if you don't have the time and space to actually get those ideas uh, kind of sensitized to people or executed well in the delivery of your platform, um, you may run out of runway in the course of a campaign. So to throw back to the reference to Kevin Page, uh, mm-hmm.
1: the person now in his, well, not the person now, but the, the role of PBO um, in campaigns is fairly new and has proven fairly significant um, insofar as, I guess you were in the position to submit policy proposals yeah. to PBO to be costed. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of punditry related to that a lot of experts were unhappy with the way pbo was going about it sometimes you know taking uh you know different figures at face value as if they were more plausible or less plausible what, what was that process like this was just to, to provide yeah. background to listeners a process that was set up by your government mm-hmm. um, to allow PBO with some controversy to be involved in the platform costing process more or less to kind of give a third party well a, a PBO stamp of approval in terms of mm-hmm. costing mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that that's added like value and credibility to the process let me I, I can't remember the specific example there but there was one in the conservative, platform where it was something like you know we'll cut three billion dollars from x and pbo had costed it at three billion dollars and the complaint from experts was you know it doesn't talk about the feasibility of doing this correct yeah, and, and so it provides the PBO a stamp of approval yeah. without talking yeah. about any of. But the, they're
0: not the, the the
1: parliamentary budget and an administrative machinery. Well, office. Right? This <laughs> is this is kind of this yes. is but one of the tensions yeah. that came out of the process of PBO costing platforms. Yeah, and
2: look. Um, so I've um, I have twice uh, been part of the post election um, uh, analysis that the the PBO does with parties. Um, to say, so what did you think of the experience? And, you know, there any advice on what we should do in the future? And you have a bit of a back and forth about what you learned. Look, I mean, I, I think it's a great process. Um, other country, Some other countries do it. In fact, I think the idea came from the experience that we've seen in other countries. It's not perfect. And it, like anything, it can be um, taken advantage of mm-hmm. or, or positioned in a yeah. certain way. Um, there's a certain gaming there. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but imagine a world if we didn't have it, right? Imagine if we didn't have that ability to say there is an independent... Uh, body that, you know, p- different people will come to sometimes different, slightly different numbers, but we're all trying to rely to the extent impossible on the same people who can give us a clear set of numbers across parties to be able to trust them. That's inherently good for democracy. It's good that you can be able to go on PBO's website and look at all of the homework behind each of the individual uh, proposals which by the way includes their assumptions right about what they mm-hmm. would and wouldn't um, uh, change as parameters and specific ideas from a from an informed voter perspective, that's hugely valuable. Now, do how many people actually use that service when they, right? Like, how many voters, I don't know. It's I, very meta. Yeah, yeah. I don't.
1: That is, that is the yeah. platinum standard, yeah. <laughs> which is both reading the platform as yeah. well as the PBO yeah. costing. I, I don't know how many people. That's when vote. your vote should, that's when it really counts. Yeah. I, the, I think You voted harder. Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, i mean i will say you know it, it's not it, it's not perfect in the sense that um it can throw a wrench into political parties as well like you can because for everything that you put in a platform before it goes live you do your own work of your own spreadsheeting exercise without the benefit of having access to resources in the department of finance or you guys have somewhere. spreadsheets yes <laughs> it's all that's a joke folks. It's, it's all one big spreadsheet it's all one big spreadsheet um and I can tell you as the person who's navigated those spreadsheets, um, you have a lot of pressure riding on your shoulders that you haven't made a spreadsheet error, right? Mm-hmm. So from a static something changed into a date. <laughs> well, or, or like cell A is trying to make a change to cell B, but you know, it's actually pointing in the wrong one, right? I mean, uh, you know, because in, in the high-pressure moment of a campaign, you can say, like, there is a major hole in your yeah. platform costing, right? So, that, so A, it takes... L- looking
1: the- at you, Bark Suckler. Sark- <laughs> 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 I may have found a few in that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Uh,
2: but it takes... So, it takes the pressure off of the staff uh, a fair bit, but it also sometimes does lead to kind of wonky outcomes where... Um, You know, you've spent all your time costing in a certain way and then PBO says, no, we think it's a bit different. And then suddenly you have to like readjust everything else that you've put in your platform to hit your your fiscal targets. But given the choice of have it or don't have it, I would love to have it because um, from the perspective of someone writing a platform, it takes a lot of pressure
1: off. Yeah, it adds it adds capacity. You said you said in your statement there. Without access to all of the resources of the finance department, I would add the asterisk of recent access to the department, or uh, as opposed to the opposition, like the the capacity gap <laughs> yeah. from the opposition perspective is all you know can be much more significant. Yeah. Very much,
2: you are just groping in the dark. True, yeah. but but hold on though. I want to make a point because
0: that's why you're the, here. The, um, Go ahead
2: like so even if you're in, so back to my point of you 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 know if you're an incumbent government you have to actually separate yourself from government in order to do it well you you actually also need to put the distance from the public service age so that people don't think that you're skimming something off of the off the top um because you can't right like you legitimately if a party did that that would be that would be a problem. That would be a real problem, um, and uh, you you actually have to you have to build these this stuff from the ground up. And so, um, you know, in my own experience, I can say like we did not have access or insight to anything that was going on in government, and had you know had to think and act uh, ideally like an opposition party. Let me challenge you on that a
1: little bit, which is to say, you were the recent beneficiary of a lot of conversations with finance and a lot of discussions with officials in the subsequent, you know, yeah. calendar year. And I imagine a lot of that is valuable. And to square that against, you know, the position folks in opposition are in, which is they're in a four-person shop with yeah. none of the va- uh, with none of none of the capacity of the Department of Finance, none of the sense of how things are going in there and it all like it creates a capacity gap and it does result i think in very tangible ways in terms of you being able to put yourselves in the shoes of finance officials in terms of but, how they would cost
2: something how they would evaluate but a though. proposal oh, hold on though your your what you just said which is like that's a well-founded theory i'm not disagreeing with with why people would think that but the department of finance does not assess um anything in the course of a campaign they like pbo can pick up the phone and call finance if they need assistance for something but finance has no role in the course of a campaign and so agree no no but but the reason i say that is because so it doesn't matter how finance officials think about something because their black box is their black box it matters how pbo thinks about something right and so uh, it, it, it like because at the end of the day you have to demonstrate something to the outside world that the outside world will buy. There will be times when finance officials in their own assessment will say, no, I we totally disagree with the PBO. We think it's it's completely different. It doesn't but in the context of accounting, it doesn't matter what finance thinks D- because their, their black box is completely impenetrable to the outside world. I completely agreed.
1: And when I what I mean in that point is to say that like, Understanding of the government of Canada writ large. Yeah.
2: Okay. Like
1: yes, sure. Yes. I, I'm using that yes. perhaps as a short form for like what is plausible government of Canada. What numbers they yeah. are they likely Cause to cause use? If you're an opposition,
0: like, like you just you just don't really know, right? Like, and perhaps this is my third party, rather yeah. official opposition, where official opposition will have had some people who have been at, yeah. in and out of government. But yeah, you're, you're kind of coming at it from a bit of like a, I, I learned yeah. I've learned a lot more about how government works since leaving the hill than I ever did, like, when right. I was actually there. Because there it was, like, you're you're in the parliamentary medium and, and operating in that medium, and you don't have a very good window into how the government is actually making decisions. I think this has changed a little bit with the confidence supply agreement. Uh, but, right. yeah, at the time, it was really, like, our window into how government
2: actually but, operated. Was very, like, so I'm not just, like, I, I'm not going to say that the experience that you build in government is worth nothing when you are you know, thinking about and planning policy, obviously, you know, gathers skills and things. Mm-hmm. But all I'm saying is um, you, you, you do need to, or certainly one thing that I appreciated from my time in government was that the way things operate on the inside of government and the way they are thought to operate on the outside of government, which is where actually elections happen, mm-hmm. are two completely different things. Yeah, And the outside world... Can't really see into how government thinks or operates, and it kind of doesn't matter because you can't use any of that information, um, or it, or in some ways, that information when it goes public, people won't believe because it's so foreign to the outside world, right? Like, um, if I said to you, "Oh, you know, here are the four reasons why we can't do something," that might be that might hit on something that you hadn't thought about before. But it's not going to necessarily um, dissuade you from why you would or wouldn't do something. In fact, it may even be counterproductive for you to consider those things um, as to why you would or wouldn't propose something. So all that is to say, I actually operate from the perspective that it's like you, you need to turn your government brain completely off effectively to do your job as in writing a, a platform if you are an incumbent government. Hmm.
1: I guess the one, let me add a uh, proposed exception to that, which is the the election run immediately following a budget, where the budget is used as kind of the the defective, yep. Yep. The defective yep. platform, which yep. is, I think, likely yep. to be the case in Alberta um, in in the coming few months, where you basically have...
2: Well, that was Ontario 2014. yeah,
1: Where you have the virtue of yep. basically having a fully costed platform mm-hmm. that you work with the yes. civil servants on, and yes. that you know, copy paste into the platform document and away you go.
2: Yep. No, that, that, that is one exception. <laughs> your, that does, yes. So I we,
0: we that. are at over an hour and nearing an hour and <laughs> ten minutes. So I, I, I am respectful of your time. <laughs> I was wondering right? how time was yeah. going. So I, I, I would have two sort of final questions yeah. and let's see, hit on, uh, picks on some threads we were talking about both with earlier in this conversation and the conversation we, we sort of had uh, when, when you got here, uh, which is sort of advice for, for two separate groups of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first is is parliamentarians. How would you make the institution work better? And the second is political staff. How would you have them do their jobs in a way that adds a lot of value to how citizens are interacting with their government?
2: Yeah. So my first advice to anyone who's new to being elected to the House of Commons is first, obviously, congratulations, um, because uh, being an MP is a very privileged position. Sometimes it... Doesn't always feel like it is the best job in the world for the for a variety of reasons, but it's a great job. Um, and the, the one piece of advice I would say is like find an issue and really become the expert in that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, committees are good for that, but committee studies go from thing to thing to thing. They do, you know, five sittings or at best eight sittings on something, um, and they kind of just scratch the surface. And it's been fascinating to watch the Senate and the contrast between the Senate and the House where, because senators are there for a longer period of time, you get senators who are like the expert, right? Like Senator Deacon is an Mm -hmm. expert in competition policy and regulation, Um, and he can produce reports on a variety of topics in that area, like, you know, probably without much thinking, Um, because he knows the subject matter cold, and he knows the experts cold. It's harder to do that when you're in the house, but it's not impossible. And certainly, if you become the expert in in an issue, and then you get to marry that with a PMB, um, you can do some interesting stuff with PMBs. Yeah, you can't spend money, but you can actually change regulation. And there's a lot of regulatory powers that the government of Canada has um, that that can actually affect some pretty interesting stuff. Um, and as you know, a, a good example of that. Um, we, uh, you know, we are seeing a bill pass through. Um, leg- yeah, I'm not sure if it's passed the Senate yet, but um, changing literally the capital uh, structure within pension, the pension space, right a- around what is the protection that people have if mm-hmm. a if a company becomes insolvent. Um, you know, these are things that have really material impacts on people's lives, and you can do something as a, as, a, as an MP of of any party, frankly, uh, even if you're not in the governing party. Um, And then you asked my advice to staff. So um, interesting little anecdote. Um, The last day that I was in PMO, which was in August of 2018, um, I took uh, a marker on my whiteboard and I wrote out a series of reflections of what I had learned in my time in PMO before I went off to start working on other stuff like the platform. And interestingly, um, I can confirm this, um, I can tell you that that advice that I wrote out on my whiteboard is still there um, to this day uh, on that very whiteboard in that office that I had on the first floor in um, A.D. Wellington. Um, and so I think that advice is actually how, what I would sum up as my guidance to staff, which if you give me a minute, I will Um Certainly. So to my successors, number one, do the job well. Number two, always keep the needs of real people in your um, in your mind. Number three, don't take "it can't be done" at face value. This certainly is an important piece of advice to staff when they're uh, dealing with the public service, because um, um, you'll be you'll be given a whole bunch of reasons <laughs> why things can't be done, and and they're important. You have to listen, but but you you can't accept that as the end of the conversation. There's got to be a, a further conversation. Number four, do your best to bring the prime minister's values, and you could say the same of any leader, um, to life in everything that you do. Number five, have fun and be humble. And I think that's actually increasingly important for staff um, because we live in an era in which we're judged often um, by small interactions and and individual events, often on social media. And I think it's important to always comport yourself with that uh, that humility and, and reflection of self. Um, number six, uh, remember, we serve at the pleasure of those who are elected, um, but you are also here for a reason. And I think that's important in reminding us all that staff are there as staff, and, and they, are, they are important too and have uh, perspective and advice to share, but ultimately, uh, it is the electeds as to why uh, mm-hmm. we are all there. Lastly, you are there because you're a smart, capable person. And, um, you know, those, uh, I guess, seven or so um, bullet points are, I think, uh, all of the key lessons that I learned in my time in government. I was going to say this begs the question of what you left on the whiteboard at finance. (laughs) I did not actually put anything on my whiteboard at finance. Um, But if I I were to, it would be something very similar.
0: (laughs) Copy, paste, good to go. Very good. Which you would have done without the benefit of the Department of Finance. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, Tyler, thank you so much. This has been a really uh, fantastic conversation and one uh, long long overdue and long in the making. So we're delighted to to have you on and uh, really thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's great.
0: Oh, and I guess I should say, uh, for the benefit of, of closing up the show, as we usually do, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can, of course, do the usual things like rate and review us on iTunes, etc. Uh, talk about it to your friends, though that's really embarrassing these days. And in fact, Ted and I are perhaps the most reticent people to talk about this podcast to our friends, as uh, Tyler found out uh, last week, I suppose, when he uh, talked to some of my coworkers and informed them that I had a podcast. So that was uh, very embarrassing. So thank you, Tyler. Uh, But yes, you can do all those things And they're of course much appreciated Uh, It's better coming from other people than from us, let me tell you Anyway, thank you so much And uh, all the best Thanks for having me